0: Good morning, everyone. What I'd like to do is to ask us to do something I never really uh, am big on, and that is to feel something. I usually want to go with the facts and the story, but today if we can, even as the song helped us to feel what was going on at the Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Can you pretend that you're Peter, James, or John this morning? And that you were there to see this staggering event of the transfiguration. Sometimes we take it for granted. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we've heard about it, and we've, we've heard about it probably many times. But to actually put ourselves there and to feel what was being felt, that's my prayer this morning. Let's ask the Lord to help us to do that together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this account of the Lord Jesus. And we've been singing about, seeing verses about, listening to songs about the Lord Jesus, listening about his glory, being reminded of his majesty. And may we be able to experience that even here this morning as we see the Lord Jesus before us. We thank you in his name, amen. I'd like to ask if you will, we're gonna pick up where we left off. Uh, That would be in July this time. In July we picked up where we left off the following, the preceding September. Matthew chapter 17, we'll read in just a moment, but at the end of Matthew 16, and this is where we were in July, there were some words that came on the heels of something that Jesus said to his disciples that would have been very hard for them to receive, and it may have been hard for us to receive every time that we read these words. So if you turn to Matthew 17, just look back a couple of verses to Matthew 16 and Verse 24. Here's what it says, And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Hard words to take. Hard words for each one of us even now to know that we're supposed to deny ourselves and we're to take up his cross and follow him. We're used to going our own direction, doing our own thing. But these are all hard words. For whoever, it says, would save his life will lose it But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? Now notice what comes next. Some encouragements the disciples heard and saw to encourage them came right after the harder words. Now we're in Matthew 16 and verse 27. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27 Here's what it says. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Now notice what's happening there is a reward. Jesus is going to come with His angels. He will repay each person according to what He has done. There will be a future reward. It reminds me of the old song now. It will be worth it all. When we see Jesus, it will be worth it all when we see Christ and those trials and troubles that we have in this world will all fade away because we're going to be able to see the Lord Jesus. Now, after that, and this follows logically after verse 27 comes verse 28. Then Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, right after that is the dazzling, glorious transfiguration of Jesus as we begin chapter 17. The importance of the transfiguration is often overlooked, but it cannot be overstated. you see what's happening? Hard words came to the apostles. Hard words that you're going to have to take up your cross every day and you're going to have to follow me. You're not going to be able to do what you want to do necessarily. You're not going to be able to write the script of your own life. You're going to have to follow what it is that I have. But then after that, he says, wait a minute, there's a reward. It will be worth it all. And then he said from those who are surrounding him, the apostles, he said, some of you are not going to taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory and his kingdom. So that's what's significant. And with that, let's stand together and we'll read Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. When the disciples heard this, remember that we're following along with our emotions. We're feeling this. We're there. We're the apostles. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Please be seated. Now we're thinking now about what this event did for the disciples, three of them. They got a chance to see Jesus in a different way than usual. One writer describes the importance of the transfiguration of Jesus in these words. The glorious transformation of the appearance of Christ is the most significant event between His birth and passion. Now, if you can imagine that. With all of the things that Jesus did when He was here on earth, this transfiguration, this transformation of the appearance of the Lord Jesus, the most significant event between His birth and then between His last week here on the earth when He died. Something that is very, very significant to transfiguration. And again, I hope that we can feel it. Jesus' disciples certainly did. And you heard that in the song that Molly sang for us. So let's go back now to chapter 16, verse 28, if you're following along there. Let's go back there for just a moment. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now what did Jesus mean by that? There are a lot of interpretations about what Jesus meant by that. What particular event is happening when they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? The ESV study Bible lists six possibilities here. It could be the transfiguration that is in view. It could be the resurrection of Jesus that Jesus is reminding them of here. It could be the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. It could be the spread of the kingdom through the preaching of the early church. It could be the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It could be the second coming and the final establishing of the kingdom. Now, if that were the case, some of the apostles standing there would have to be very old if that were the case, since they would have gone 2,000 years waiting for that. If they're not going to taste death until that event, then they're still here. And so we can rule out, I think, that one, and I think we can rule out a lot of them. Which interpretation do I favor? The first one, the transfiguration. And why do I do that? Well, because it makes sense in the immediate context. It's more clear in Mark chapter 9. If you turn to Mark 9 for just a moment, please. Remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original manuscripts. And notice also the word power as it's going to appear in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now notice what happens next. Next is the account of the transfiguration in Mark. But verse 1 begins it, In Matthew's account, it ends a chapter. In Mark's it begins. There is nothing in the chapter divisions that is inspired people do that, but I believe that they do belong together because this event is something very, very significant. And in the immediate context, we find the transfiguration when Jesus says, some of you who are standing here, some of you apostles are not going to taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His glory. So... If you'll turn with me to one other passage, and that would be 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, this is something very significant, and this is something that we can see. Peter never forgot what he was feeling at this moment. Peter never forgot this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power Peter never forgot that there were so many things he could have remembered about Jesus he could have included, but he included this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He talked about the power of the Lord Jesus on display, and he obviously was talking about the transfiguration. So you can see my focus this morning from the message title, The Kingdom of God with Power, The Transfiguration. Again, I want to emphasize that the transfiguration was a monumental event. It made a huge impression on Peter, James, and John. So if we look together at verse 1, this is a prelude to the transfiguration. After six days, it says. That would be six days after Peter's great confession of who Jesus was, that you are the Christ, the Son of God. After six days, it says. Now, critics of the Bible love to try to pick away at certain things in the Scriptures. And they think they found an error here. They think they found a discrepancy in the accounts that are here, and the Bible's not really inerrant. There are mistakes all over the place, but there certainly are not. But the critics think that they found one here. Because Luke says this was after about eight days. And so they say, well, one account says six days, and another account says about eight days. Does that throw biblical inerrancy out the window? I, I think... Just looking at first glance, we can say, no, it doesn't. There's no discrepancy here. Mark and Matthew both say six days. Well, why does Luke say about eight days? Well, Matthew and Mark counted the days between Peter's confession and the transfiguration. Luke counted all the days involved. In fact, I would say that speaks highly of inerrancy because one was speaking from his point of view, another from another point of view, but they weren't wrong. One of them just simply counted the, the bookends and the other one did not. Now notice something that's happening here. It tells us that Jesus took with him a select three, Peter, James, and John. Notice how Jesus led them, it says, up a high mountain by themselves. Luke says he went up the mountain to pray. Good things happened. With prayer, and we can see this all the time the importance of prayer before monumental events in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. But notice what's happening here. This is a setup. This is a good one, though. It was preconceived, it was premeditated, it was purposeful. Jesus had a special blessing for three strategically chosen servants of His. Peter, James, and John would view this transfiguration. They would see the transformation in the Lord Jesus. They would see everything and hear everything that was going on. Their lives would never, ever be the same, and it keeps spilling out of them over and over again. One of the things that I've been hearing a lot about recently uh, as I listen to Christian radio and as I do some reading and things like that is the whole idea of trusting God to write the story of our life. Trust God to write the story of your life. And recognize, even as what is happening here, Jesus took with Him these apostles. He led them. This was to be a time of prayer, but Jesus wasn't surprised by what was going on. He did this purposefully. There are a lot of things that happen in our lives that sometimes will surprise us. And sometimes we wonder, is this really in my best interest? Is this something that I can justifiably dread and say, this is awful. Why is this happening to me? Why are these events lining up the way that they're lining up? Well, think in terms of God if we trust Him to write the story of our lives. That means we trust Him with the book of our life. We trust Him with every chapter. We trust Him with every paragraph every sentence, every word, every punctuation mark. And if we do that, then we end up trusting the Lord with all of our heart and not leaning on our own understanding. So we see Jesus premeditatedly bringing three particular individuals into a particular spot on a high mountain where something dramatic is going to happen and will change their lives. And that, that brings me, if you're following in an outline, to the first major point. We've seen the prelude. This is the transfiguration in verse 2. Where did it take place? Mark calls it a high mountain. The mountain is not identified in the text. The traditional site is Mount Tabor. That's in the middle of the plain of Jezreel. If you visited Israel, you know there's a beautiful church commemorating the transfiguration. sits on the top of Mount Tabor. But Tabor is not a high mountain. It says he took them up on a high mountain. It's only 1,843 feet above sea level. Mount Hermon, at over 9,000 feet, located near Caesarea, where the context places Jesus anyway, seems to be a much more probable location. Besides, at the time, Mount Tabor housed a Roman fortress. Probably wouldn't have been an appealing place for a prayer retreat anyway. So we're thinking that he took them on this high mountain. The high mountain was Mount Hermon. And it tells us he was transfigured before them. Now, they hadn't died yet. Remember, they're not going to taste death. Some of them standing there with Jesus are not going to taste death until they see him coming in his glory. And so they saw Jesus appearing again after establishing his kingdom. They got a glorious preview. They saw Jesus in what he would look like, and they did it in in a marvelous way. Transfigured before them. What does transfigured mean? Matthew and Mark use this word. Metamorphothe. Metamorphothe, and you can, you can hear that, uh, a word that we know that is in there as well. Metamorphothe comes from meta, to change, and morphe, form, to change form. There's a metamorphosis that is taking place here. But this is a change of form that takes place from within. It doesn't start externally, it comes from within. The word transfigured describes a change on the outside coming from the inside and the opposite of the word masquerade. That's an outward change that does not come from within. So Jesus was transfigured from the inside out. That's his true glory that was allowed to radiate from within. Now, I have a picture, if Rich would put that picture up for me, because I'm, I'm not able to use this for some reason. Um. I'm not sure what this is, but this is a picture of something that will be very familiar to you. Does anybody recognize what that is? That's obviously a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. What do we call that? A metamorphosis. And so that's what's the word here uh, in the Greek is metamorphothē, from which we get metamorphosis. So we have a cocoon before us. All the tissues of the caterpillar are reorganized. Larval structures are broken down. Adult structures such as wings are organized. And when the process is complete, the result is a butterfly. Metamorphosis has taken place. You will not any longer see a caterpillar crawling along. Uh, Kent Hughes has said this, and I think this is a very significant quote. R. Kent Hughes, a, a scripture writer, or I mean a, a commentator, For a brief moment, the veil of His humanity was lifted and His true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory that was always in the depths of His being rose to the surface that one time in His earthly life. And it tells us some exciting things. His face shone like the sun. Now remember, you're there. You're looking at Jesus' face. It's shining like the sun. Luke says the appearance of his face was altered. Well, greatly altered, because now it looks as bright and dazzling as the sun to see Jesus' face. His clothing is very significant. It became as white as light. One translation calls it as bright as a flash of lightning. Mark says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And Luke says the clothes became dazzling white. Do you have that picture in your mind? I hope you do. That picture of Jesus' face and Jesus' clothing. Think about all the comparison commercials you've ever seen with those detergent companies and bleach products and realize that nothing in all of the world could make clothes whiter than Jesus did on this occasion. Secondly, Some surprise visitors we see in verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Well, these visitors were unusual to say the least. They were extraterrestrials at this point. They had come from a long ways away. Moses had been dead for over 1,400 years, and Elijah had been gone for 900 years. Notice I didn't say he died because he was taken up into heaven, but he was gone from this planet, at least, for about 900 years. Why the two of them? Why Moses and why Elijah? Well, one possibility is that they added to this unforgettable appearance of Jesus. Can you imagine that? It wasn't enough for Jesus to be in this dazzling garment, for his face to be shining as white as the sun. That wasn't enough. Now... With him come Moses and Elijah, and I think we'd have to agree that they were pretty pretty important people in the Old Testament. Uh, Some major VIPs coming on this occasion. So that's one possible reason it added to their unforgettable appearance. They comfort us also with the proof of eternal living. Life doesn't end after one generation of living. You realize that, right? This isn't all there is. The generation that I live is not the beginning and the end of the story. And this is a great comfort to see that. 1,400 and 900 years later, we see people back on the scene, recognizable as to who they are. These two men also, both of whom predicted Christ's death, represented the law and the prophets. The Greek construction here indicates that this was an extended conversation. They didn't just come and say hello and then they're gone. This was an extended conversation. What do you think they were talking about? What do you think they were talking about? Well, as you think through that, some of you are processing and saying, well, I know what they were talking about because Luke, in his account, does tell us exactly what they were talking about. They were talking about the departure of Jesus which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were talking about that departure, not demise. They were talking about his departure because that was significant. And the law and the prophets had pointed to that. Here they were discussing with Jesus at great length this departure that he was about to embark on. I love the word departure. He was leaving one place and going to another. This wasn't the end of Jesus either. It's interesting that the Greek word used here for departure is the word exodus. Moses knew something about departures, and so did Elijah. He had a departure, but not a demise and not a death. Notice, if you're looking at verse 8, um, notice how quickly they left the scene. They vanished They were there, they had a discussion, but then they were gone. Who was left? Well, Jesus was the one. The law and the prophets were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. They were no longer necessary. Jesus was affirmed, and then they disappeared. They had something to accomplish. They left a great impact, no doubt, on Peter, James, and John, but then they were gone. Mark cites Elijah before Moses. Luke puts Moses before Elijah. You know what? It doesn't matter what order they were in. God, in just a moment in this story, is going to identify the chief personage here. He'll identify that as the Lord Jesus. It's important that He is the one who is supreme. It didn't matter the order of the other two. Well, in verse 4, come to our, our third major point in the outline, Peter's reaction to this. He wanted to make a tent for Jesus, He wanted to make one for Moses also, and one for Elijah. Why did he want to make three tents? Because he was two tents. Well, you have to spell them differently, but that's why exactly, because Mark adds more information. It says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. That's what I meant when I said he was two tents. They were terrified, and he didn't know what to say, and this is kind of what came out. What was the purpose of Peter's suggestion of making the tents? Commentators have a lot of fun guessing what the significance of that was. Uh, One of the conclusions that we come to, though, is that he didn't know what to say, and that was what came out of his mouth, and so he said that. This may have had something to do with the Feast of Tents or Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which may have been uh, nearby or coming close to that time. Maybe he was just trying to be courteous. Maybe he was stalling for time to prolong the great moment because he was thoroughly enjoying it. One writer says, however, had Jesus complied, had he said, yeah, go ahead and make three tents, one for each of us, Peter's unfortunate suggestion would have placed all three figures on the same level. And they certainly didn't belong at the same level. Jesus is supreme. Peter was confused, this writer says, at best. His offer to make the tents, though, was never acted on directly. He never even got an answer to that. Well, yes or no at all, because the offer was never dealt with because of the next astounding event to unfold. And that's uh, point four in the outline. Another surprise visitor. This in verse five. Another surprise visitor. A bright cloud appeared and it overshadowed them. Remember, you're still there and you're still involved in all of these events that are taking place. Moses and Elijah have just gone, but now there's this bright cloud and it overshadows all of them. Remember, God had led his people Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud One writer says, God palpably demonstrated His presence by a pillar-shaped cloud that radiated a fiery luminosity upon the setting of the sun. It was spectacular, to say the least. So God was in the business of making some of these special displays. So there's a bright cloud and now a voice declaring that Jesus was His beloved Son with whom He was well-pleased. The surprise visitor is clearly then God the Father. The voice helped to remove any possible distractions. Remember earlier in chapter 16, some of the distractions that people had were, who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus said, well, some say John the Baptist or Elijah or a prophet from of old come back to life or Jeremiah. No, Jesus was far, far greater than any of them. Those distractions were now completely out of the picture. The focus is on Jesus. It's not on the law or the lawgiver or the prophets or anyone else. If you'll turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 1. I'd like you to see these verses in Hebrews chapter 1. We're thinking now of the impression that was made on the apostles. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And again, we see the glory, the radiance of the Lord Jesus and the power on display at the transfiguration. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. That's the picture of the Lord Jesus all throughout. Here God said something. He said, listen to him. Not hear him, listen To him intently and do what he says. Well, according to verse 6, there's another reaction from the apostles. The three disciples would never forget this incredible moment. They fell on their faces and were terrified. God certainly had their attention. Reminds me of how God got Saul of Tarsus' attention on the road to Damascus. These are unforgettable moments. Verse 7, what did Jesus do for the apostles? He came, he touched, he spoke comforting words to them. You've heard me say this a lot. No fear, God with us. Jesus made his presence known. He came right to them. He did things, he said things, he touched to them. He told them not to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid because God is with us. Verse 8, and suddenly it was over. It was done. Notice how important these words were and are that follow. They saw no one but Jesus only. That's what we should all be guilty of, seeing no one but Jesus only. On the back of the wall of the auditorium at Camp of the Woods, some of you are familiar with the, the camp in New York, Facing the speaker on the back of the wall so that if I'm up here speaking and I'm looking on the back wall are words that can't be missed. Sir, we would see Jesus. You can take everything else away. You can even take Moses and Elijah away. You can take all of these things that are important to us today. All we want to do is to see Jesus. That's my prayer for this morning that each one of us is able to see the Lord Jesus in this transfiguration as Peter, James, and John were able to do. They remind us. We see them in the company of these exciting people like Elijah and Moses, but God the Father Himself put the spotlight on Jesus. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. That's why Luke 9, 36 informs us, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. But that gag rule was lifted after the resurrection. Why the transfiguration? To affect Peter, James, and John for the rest of their lives. They represented the other apostles. They were the ones most intimately related to Jesus. They were the ones who had credibility with the others. They needed some encouragement after the hard words of having to deny themselves and take up Jesus' cross and follow him. The transformation, transfiguration was something they never forgot. It was something they used in the future to declare the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus. John was there. What did John say in chapter 1, verse 14? And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen His glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It had a huge impact. And remember those verses that we read earlier, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16-18, to 18, when he talks directly about the transfiguration. And let's close by turning to 1 John chapter 1 we'll hear what John has to say. Because it wasn't just the apostles. It wasn't just the three who were impacted by this. He passes it on. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, and you're going to notice all of the senses involved right now in the next few verses over and over again, what he saw and what he heard. From the beginning, he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This event and other events didn't happen purposelessly, but purposefully. It changed the apostles forever. And I hope that as we've taken the places of those apostles, Peter, James, and John this morning, and we have been to the transfiguration, we've been to the mountain, the high mountain, that we're able to appreciate even more fully what dazzling splendor, majesty, and power is in the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank You for Him. Thank You for the Lord Jesus. Thank You for the demonstration of the mighty power and Your pleasure in Him and what He did, and the reminder of Jesus' soon departure from this planet. Thank You that as He left, He's coming again. And He'll come again in power and glory. And we look forward to that, and we thank You in His name. Amen.